Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14. If you would, follow along as I read, starting in verse 14. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mysteries of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. If you would, pray along with me this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, God, I, thinking of this week as we uh, come to Thanksgiving, Lord, I am so thankful for your grace, Lord. I'm thankful for the grace that you have poured out on my life, Lord, taking a life that was dead in rebellion against you, Lord, bringing life to my dead soul, Lord, and pouring out your grace, what your Son did on the cross, Lord, dying for my sins, Lord. I thank you. As we finish up this series, Lord, on spiritual warfare, as we finish up this, this whole sermon series on the book of Ephesians, Lord, I pray that we just glorify and praise you, Lord, for your grace that you have poured out on us. I also pray for anyone that's watching online or that is in this room right now, Lord, that doesn't have a relationship with you, that they don't end this day without crying out for mercy and grace, seeking you, Lord, in faith. God, I pray for that. Be with us this morning in your spirit. Amen. Today we're uh, finishing up the study of spiritual warfare. We're really finishing up the study of the whole book of Ephesians. That's my goal. My goal actually was to be done last week, and I went long. Um, and so we are going to be done before this next week, Thanksgiving, and um, it's been a, a long time. We've started this uh, book. We started preaching through Ephesians over a year ago, um, not knowing what this year was going to hold, not knowing what two, 2020 was going to look like. And I've said this on a number of occasions that I believe the book of Ephesians has been a perfect book to be in during this year. We didn't know, but God knew what book we needed to be in as a church, and I'm thankful for that. But to be honest, I'm kind of sad. It's kind of weird. I've been studying this this week, and it just hit me like, hey, we're going to be done um, this week. It's almost like relatives that uh, come and stay for a week and then they leave. It's not like they're not relatives anymore. You're not going to see them again, but it's just kind of sad to end that time. And uh, it's the same with the book of Ephesians. We've been in it for so long. Um, it's somewhat sad that we're going to be moving on to a different book, although we will come back and reference it and read it and enjoy it in um, different aspects. But I was trying to think, okay, how do I finish a whole book series? Uh, and uh, I have three parts of my sermon today, and it's going to be somewhat disconnected, these three parts, and it's because I want to finish this book well. Um, I thought, you know what, a good way of finishing a book is to do a quick overview of the entire book and what we've covered in this last year. Um, I know some of you are like, how's that going to be quick? Um, I tried first service, and I thought it was going to be quick, and it wasn't as quick as I thought it was going to be, so I will do my best. Uh, um, but we're going to go through the whole book of Ephesians quickly, and then after that, we're going to slow down and look at this last portion. So my three points this morning, or three parts of the sermon this morning, is a review of the entire book of Ephesians. That's the first part. And then we're going to look at the manner in which we should engage into spiritual warfare the manner in which we should engage into spiritual warfare. And then we're going to just quickly, quickly look over the closing benediction. So if you would, let's start with a review of the entire book of Ephesians and turn to Ephesians 1, verse 1. Ephesians 1, verse 1. 
We're going to be covering a lot of ground this morning, obviously, but the first two verses is just an introduction. It's a pretty typical Pauline introduction, and verse 1 says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, a typical, typical intro, but from here, Paul bursts into an amazing doxology. A theologically rich praise of God, which we spent months on. Verses 3 through 14, which really is just one long sentence in the Greek. In the English, we separate it. But in the Greek, if you go to the Greek, it's one long sentence. It's 202 words long. One massive run-on sentence in Greek, just praising God over and over again. Praising, in fact, all the members of the Trinity for their different work within our salvation. We have past, present, future, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Verses 4 through 6, from eternity past, God the Father chose us and predestined us, planned out our salvation. In verses 7 through 12, in this present age, God the Son, Jesus, redeemed us, forgave us. He accomplished our salvation. And verses 13 through 14, the promised future, the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit, sealed us to a guaranteed inheritance. He guarantees our salvation. Each section ends with the phrase, to the praise of his glory. And that's the main point of this one long sentence, that all the glory goes to God for our salvation. The whole doxology, all the praise goes to God for what he has done in our lives. In other words, we are blessed and rich, infinitely rich, and all the praise goes to God. We did nothing. Paul starts this epistle with just a burst of praise, and he doesn't stop. He doesn't even take a breath for 202 words. From here, he moves in to a prayer. Ephesians 1, verse 15 through 23 is a prayer that he writes out. And it probably was a common prayer that he prayed for the church at Ephesus. And in fact, it probably was a common prayer that he prayed for every church that he was a part of. And I would say if he was here today and he was a part of Country Oaks somehow, he would be praying this prayer for us as a church. And he prays specifically for knowledge. For me, when I first studied this book, it was actually somewhat surprising But that's what he prays for. He prays for knowledge. In fact, look at verse 17. It says, Remembering you in my prayers, verse 17 says this, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom, that you would have wisdom and and of revelation that's revealed truth, knowledge given to the church. In the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know. He prays for knowledge, and he prays for knowledge of two things in particular. One, the first thing is, what is the hope with which he has called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in all the saints? And the second thing is found in verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? Paul prays that we would know how blessed we are. That we would have knowledge of how truly rich and blessed we are. Those that have put their faith in Christ, those that are saved. Then in chapters 2, 1 through 10, Paul tells us. Chapter 2, he moves from this prayer, praying that the church would have knowledge, and then he tells us how blessed we are in chapters two, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, in fact, is the clearest statement on our salvation, I believe, in all of Scripture. The clearest statement on, on, on the gospel in all of Scripture. What has happened to us, who we were before we were saved, and who we became after God's grace touched our lives. If you would, look at verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1. It says this, And you were dead. This is who we were beforehand. You were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of power of the air, the spirit that is now in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Before salvation, we were children of wrath. That means children destined for God's wrath destined for eternity in hell like the rest of mankind. Verse 4, but God, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, 
made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up and with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That's the clearest statement there is in Scripture of our salvation. It's by grace we have been saved. And it's through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. Not a result of works. So that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. His creation. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Right? And the gospel... Right, that we were dead because of what Christ has done for us. Because we were dead, now we are alive in Christ. Because of the gospel and who we are in Christ, we have a foundation to our unity. The gospel is foundational to our unity as a church. Right? As the church, we are unified because we are in Christ. In fact, the heart of the letter to the Ephesians is found in Ephesians 2, 11 through 3.13. The heart of this amazing letter is unity and love within the church. That's why Paul wrote this letter. The Gentiles have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's verse 13. Ephesians 2 verse 13. Right? There was a major threat in the first century church, and this is the context that this letter was written, that Paul wrote this letter to the church at Ephesus. Right? The church started with Jews. And through persecution and the Jews, Jews realizing that the gospel wasn't, wasn't just for the Jews, the church spread to the nations, to Gentiles. In the first century, the church was made up of Jews and Gentiles, two groups that hated each other. We see this in the Old Testament. The Old Testament, for the most part, is just wars of, of the Gentile nations attacking the Jewish nation or vice versa. We see this in the Gospels and Acts, right? This disdain that the Jews had for Gentiles. Two ethnic groups that hated each other are now one in Christ. They're, they're the church. Therefore, in Ephesians 2, 11 through 3, verse 13, Paul tells these two groups that they are not two anymore. They are one. It's the heart of the letter. In Christ Jesus... They are one man, one new man, verse 15. They're one body, verse 16. They both, these two groups, they both have access to one spirit, verse 18. They both, they both are now members of one household, the household of God. They've been adopted in, both of them, and are one family, verse 19. They are one temple, verse 21. They're one dwelling place of God. Verse 22, that's the church. I don't care what ethnicity, what race you come from. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are one with this church, with the church. We are one. Because of the gospel, which is Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, the church is one. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. This is so important, right? This is so important because the gospel is, the gospel is the only thing that can bring true unity. The church must not forget this. It's being ignored by the church right now. The gospel is the only thing that can bring true unity between ethnic groups, between races, between people. In Ephesians chapter 3, 1 through 13, Paul calls this unity a mystery. Look at Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6. It says this, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. In other words, it's a mystery. They have become one with the Jews. They're fellow heirs with the Jews. This wasn't clearly seen in the Old Testament, but has been revealed in the New Testament. And listen, this unity is why Paul was in jail. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason, right, what reason? For the reason, Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, that Jews and Gentiles are, are one body. For this reason, for this purpose, 
I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Paul risked everything. He risked his life for the unity of the church. He ended up in prison two years in Caesarea and three years in Rome. Unity is that important. The church being unified is that important. In fact, we see this is true, that Paul was literally in jail because he had a heart for unity. And I would encourage you, if I don't have time to go over um, uh, the, the meta-narrative or the narrative of Acts, but if you, if you want to hear that, I did a sermon on Ephesians. That's one verse, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. You can go to our church website. You can click on sermons, click on Ephesians, go to Ephesians 3, 1. And I walk through Acts, how Paul was determined, determined to go back to Jerusalem to give a gift. To give a gift. And everyone was saying, if you go back to Jerusalem, Paul, you're going to die. And Paul was determined to go because it meant the unity of the church. Unified the Gentile churches with the the Jewish churches. And he went, knowing his life would be on the line. And he ended up being arrested instead of killed. Ephesians 2, 11 through 3, verse 13 is all about unity. And it's the heart of this book. After this, Paul writes another prayer, Ephesians 3, verse 14 through 21. It's amazing that that Paul writes out two different prayers, what he prayed for the churches. And again, he prayed that the church would have knowledge. He prayed that the church would have knowledge. Look at Ephesians chapter 3, verse 18. He prays that the church, in verse 18, he prays that the church may have the strength to comprehend. He's praying that we would have strength to understand. We need strength to comprehend this. The strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and and length and height and depth and to know that he's praying for knowledge, to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge is something we can't understand, we can't know. It's beyond our ability to know. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Verse 20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly then all that we may might ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory that the church, in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. And that ends the first half of this amazing letter. Remember, Ephesians can be split up into two halves, right in the middle. The first three chapters is all deep theology. All deep theology on what has happened to us. In fact, there's only one command in the first three uh, chapters, and that one command is remember. Remember all this that I'm telling you. Don't forget this, right? What has happened to us. Chapters 4 through 6 is how we should live in light of this deep theology, these deep truths, what has happened to us. In chapters 4 through 6, there's 39 commands. 39 commands. And that's why we titled this series that we've been going Um, the study of Ephesians, the depth of God's grace lived out in love. Paul wants us to understand how blessed we are by God's grace, and then he wants us to live in light of that grace. In fact, look at Ephesians 4, verse 1. I, therefore, verse 1 says, therefore, again, that word therefore is saying, because of chapters 1 through 3, I, therefore, a prisoner of Christ, or of the Lord, urge you to walk, that's a call to action, I urge you to walk in a matter worthy of the calling with which you have been called. That's Ephesians 1 through 3. Hey, walk this way because of what happened to you, what God has done for you, the grace he's poured out on you that I talked about in Ephesians 1 through 3. Walk in this manner. Well, what manner? Well, walk in unity. Walk in unity. That's chapter 4, 1 through 16. Look at verse 2. Chapter 4, verse 2 says this. We should walk with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another, that's in the church, one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We should be eager to maintain unity, to love each other. In Ephesians four seventeen through 32, we're called to walk in holiness. Verse 17, look at verse 17. Ephesians four seventeen says this, you must that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Well, how do Gentiles walk? Well, in this day and age, they walked as pagans in unholiness. We should walk in holiness, in other words. Ephesians 5, verse 1 through 7, we're called to walk in love. Look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children 
and walk in love. We're called to walk in love. Ephesians 5, verse 8 through 14, we're called to walk in light. Look at verse 8, Ephesians 5, verse 8. For at one time you were darkness. It doesn't even say you were in darkness. You were darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Ephesians 5, 15 through 21, we're called to walk in wisdom. Look at verse 15, Ephesians 5, 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. We're called to walk in wisdom. We are called to walk worthy of the calling with which we have been called. That means walk in unity, in holiness, in love, in light, and in wisdom. From here, Paul moves on to the household codes, which he talks about relationships in the first century household. That's wives and husbands, parents, children, masters, and bond servants. And why does Paul do this? I mean, when I was studying this, and, and you see the heart of this letter is unity within the church, and then it's, all of a sudden he switches and starts talking about the family, it made me question, why does he go to the household codes? Why does he talk about the relationships within the home? I truly believe the reason he talks about the relationships within the home is because the family is foundational to the church. The family is foundational to the church. In fact, the family is foundational to society. It's the main reason our society is crumbling right now. It's not systemic racism or oppression. It's the attack on the family. family is foundational to society, and the family is foundational to the church. It's foundational to the church. If you want unity, if you want peace, that's Ephesians 4, 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bonds of peace, we need strong families. Work on your relationships at home. If you have an unmarried spouse, be the husband or wife you're called to be. Work on your marriage. Work on your parenting. Raise your children the way that, that, that you're called to in the light of the glory of God, proclaiming the gospel, evangelizing them as they grow. Paul focuses on three relationships, three family relationships, husbands and wives. Look at Ephesians 5, verse 22. It's a command to the wife. Wives, submit to your husband, your own husband, as to the Lord. Look at Ephesians 5, verse 26. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. If you didn't hear my sermon on this, that's the harder calling, by the way. That's the more selfless calling. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. He gave himself up for her. Parent children, look at Ephesians 6, verse 1. Children, Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Ephesians 6, verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. You want unity? Work on your relationship with your children. Children, obey your parents. In fact, you want to be blessed? Children, obey your parents. Master bondservant. You know, it should tell you how intimate that relationship was in the first century. That it's put with husband, wife, parent, children. I did a whole sermon on this, too, if you want to go back and listen to it. Master, bondservant. Look at Ephesians 6, 5. Bondservant, obey your earthly masters. Look at Ephesians 6, verse 9. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. The family is foundational to the church. We need strong families in our church. Which leads us to the last major section of Ephesians, and that's the armor of God which we've been in for the last few months. If you would look at Ephesians 6 verse 10, it says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. We're called to seek strength, but not strength from within. We're called to strength, or seek strength from the Lord, God's strength. How do we do this? How do we, how do we seek God's strength? Well, look at verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God. That's how. 
that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. In other words, our enemy is not people. People are deceived. People that are outside of the church are deceived by our enemy. They're our mission field. We are called to to go proclaim truth. We are to stand against the schemes of the devil. He's our enemy. Verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our enemy is Satan and his army of demons. Powerful. Smart. Well organized. Verse 13, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. We're called to stand, to hold our ground, to stand firm. Verse 14, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. What is truth? God is truth. Therefore, his word is truth. His words are truth. His his truth is found in his words. In fact, John 17, 17 says, your word is truth. We are to fasten the belt of truth. We need to know, read, and hear, and study God's word. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness, after studying and knowing God's word, we need to be doers of God's word. Not hearers only, but doers. And when we fail, because we will fail in in our doing, we need to put on the gospel of peace. Look at verse 15. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, we are at peace with God. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ and what he's done on on the cross, because of the finished work of Christ, because of the gospel, we find rest. We are at peace with God. Because of the gospel, because of what Christ has done for us on the cross, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. It's Romans 8. If we fail, if we sin as Christians, which we will, we confess our sins. Right? We expose our sins to the light, and he, which is God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. That's 1 John 1, 9. We confess our sins to God, and he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. That's the gospel of peace. We're at peace with God. We can come to him with our, our failures. Verse 16. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Faith protects us from the flaming darts or arrows of the evil one, which is temptations. Right? Faith says, I trust you, God. So when temptations come, you, you say, no, I'm not going to do that because I trust God. I'm going to obey. It, it, it extinguishes all the flaming darts of the evil one. Verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation brings hope. Hope protects us from discouragement and doubt when we face hard circumstances. And the last piece of armor, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It's the only offensive piece of armor we have. Everything else is defensive, that we are to take a stand when the devil comes and attacks, and we take a stand defensively. There's one offensive weapon the church has been given, and that's the sword of the Spirit. You know, I had someone email me after the sermon last week and say, you know what's amazing about the sword of the Spirit? I talked about how the, the, the disciples, when Jesus was on, on earth during the, the time of the Gospels, they wanted Jesus to pick up the physical sword and start a revolution. That's what they were hoping for, that, they would, that Jesus would overthrow the Roman government by, by a physical sword. And they said, you know what's amazing about the sword of the Spirit is that the physical sword kills. The sword of the Spirit brings life. Overthrew the Roman government in a couple hundred years with life through the sword of the Spirit. That's amazing. Hebrews 4, 12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joint and of marrow, and, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's powerful. The sword is our only offensive weapon, and it's powerful. Which brings us to verse 18. That was my introduction, so... Now that we know the context of verse 18, we can dive into verse 18. 
My goal is to get out before 12, I promise. Uh, This brings us to our next point. The manner in which we should engage into spiritual warfare. We're going to slow down now. I wanted to go through the whole book of Ephesians just as a farewell to this book that we've been in for so long. But I want to take time to go over this important aspect of spiritual warfare, the manner in which we should engage into spiritual warfare. Look at verse 18, because this is the manner or method or way or means or mode that we should enter into battle. We should be praying at all times in the Spirit. Praying at all times in the Spirit. You know, prayer is not armor in this passage. And it's interesting to me because I would assume prayer is one of the pieces of armor It's not armor in this passage. Prayer is the manner in which we engage into battle. It's the manner into which we engage into spiritual warfare. We should be praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplications to that end. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplications for all the saints. Paul in this one verse and the following verses gives us six exhortations about prayer Wartime prayer. And I want to go over these six exhortations very quickly. Six exhortations about wartime prayer. The first exhortation is this. We should pray continuously. Look at the word all. One verse, the word all is used four times. Praying at all times with all prayer and supplication, with all perseverance for all the saints. Paul's point is, in war, our prayer should be lived out. It should be prayed extensively or all-embracing all or, or all-encompassing. Comprehensively. We should be praying at all times in the Spirit. What does that mean? You know, I've always wondered, even up to this point of studying this passage, because you hear that uh, throughout the New Testament, uh, of praying at all times, just in con- constant prayer. I'm like, how is that possible? Like, how is that a command that can actually be lived out? What does it mean to to pray at all times in the Spirit? I was reading commentaries and trying to figure this out, and and you know what? There's a pastor that just wrote in one of his commentaries on this that I I thought was just the best explanation of what it means to pray at all times, and I just want to read it. It says this, To pray at all times is to live in constant awareness of God where everything we see and experience becomes a kind of prayer lived in deep awareness of and surrender to our Heavenly Father. To obey this exhortation means that when we are tempted, we hold the temptation out before God and ask for His help. When we experience something good and beautiful, we immediately thank the Lord for it. When we see evil around us, we pray that God will make it right and will and, um, be willing to be used by him for that ends. When we meet someone that doesn't know Christ, we pray for, to God to draw that person to himself and, 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 to be used, or, and to use us to be a faithful witness. When we encounter troubles, we turn to God as our deliverer. In other words, our life becomes a rising prayer. To pray all times is to continuously set our minds on the things above and not the things on earth. Colossians 3, 2. That's what Paul means by praying at all times in the Spirit. The second exhortation that Paul gives is that we should be praying in the Spirit. Verse 18, it says, praying at all times in the Spirit. In the Spirit. What does in the Spirit mean? It's another thing I, I see in the New Testament and I've wondered, okay, what does it mean to pray in the Spirit? It means that the Spirit fills our heart, minds, souls as we pray, and the Spirit guides us as we pray. Well, what's the best way for this to be done? I believe by praying the Bible. I mean, think about it. The Bible is literally the Spirit's words. You want to pray in the Spirit, pray the Spirit's words. Pray the Bible. If you would, turn with me to Ephesians 5, verse 18. I want to show you something that I think is interesting. Ephesians 5, verse 18. It starts off by saying this in verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. I want, or, be filled with the Spirit. 
what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Well, well, Paul's about to tell us. Be filled with the Spirit, verse 19. This is what, it, this is what, what happens when you're filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what happens when we're filled with the Spirit. Now keep your finger on Ephesians 5.18 and turn to Colossians 3.16. Just keep your finger there and and turn to Colossians 3.16. Colossians 3.16 starts by saying this, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the word of Christ, let Scripture dwell in you richly. Well, what does it mean to let Scripture dwell in you richly? Well, this is what it means. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word and deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. It's almost word for word the same as being filled with the Spirit. Letting the word dwell in you richly and being filled with the Spirit produces the same thing. And that makes sense because the Holy Spirit out of the, the Trinity is the one that wrote, spirit, wrote Scripture. He's the one that inspired men to write. It's His words. And remember, Ephesians and Colossians are parallel texts. Right? They're written at the same exact time. In fact, they're so similar that they help interpret each other. In other words, being filled with the Spirit is the same as having the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. So one of the best ways I believe you can, you can pray in the Spirit is by praying Scripture. Praying the Spirit's words. Turn with me to Acts chapter 4, verse 23. Acts 4, verse 23. It says this, when they, that's the disciples, the disciples and the apostles uh, are, 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 have been released and they see that persecution's coming. So they're going to pray. And they're going to ask their friends to pray. They're going to ask the church to pray. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voice together to God and said, Sovereign Lord. I, I, let me just want to stop there. It's not my notes, but I cannot get past that first word. First two words. Persecution's coming. Right? Extremely hard circumstances are, are coming, and they know it's coming, and they start their prayer, Sovereign Lord. In other words, you're in control, God. Complete trust that he's in control. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You know what that is? Genesis 1. It's not word for word, Genesis 1, but it's a paraphrase of Genesis 1. They're praying... Genesis 1. Who, through the mouth of your father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why do the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? You know what that is? Psalms 2. That's word for word Psalms 2. That's that's quoting Scripture. They are literally praying Scripture. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers are gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. That's Psalms 2. Peter is praying Scripture. Look what he says in verse 25. uh, Who through the mouth of of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. So David wrote these these words, but the Holy Spirit's the one that inspired. These are the Holy Spirit's words. This is how you pray in the Spirit. Pray Scripture. Leads us to our third exhortation. Pray with urgency. Turn back to Ephesians 6, verse 18. We need to pray with urgency. Ephesians 6, verse 18 says, Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. The word supplication is used twice in verse 18. and In Greek, it's desis. It's often just translated prayer. It means... That which is asked with urgency based on a presumed need. 
It's a request or a plea with urgency. Listen, although we trust in God's sovereignty, we should pray with urgency because we are at war. We are at war. I just don't think the church in America actually believes they're at war. I think because of the comforts of this world, we have fallen asleep to the reality that we are at war. Think of war for a second. I've never been in war, and I think most of us haven't. But think of war. Just the movies or the thought of war, right, heightens the senses. If you're in the jungle or, or a forest and you know that there's enemies out there that want to kill you, you start hearing things. Anything that moves, you hear and go, what's that? You hear all around you, behind you, in front of you, to the side of you. You don't blink because you don't want to miss something. Right? War focuses your senses. It focuses you. We should pray with that type of urgency. Because we are at war. The Bible makes that clear. And Jesus is our greatest example of this. Turn to Mark 14.32. We might go a little long today, I'm sorry. Mike, Mark 14, verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John, and he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Those two words are interesting words in Greek. Greatly distressed means to be amazed or shocked at something. Troubled in Greek is distress that follows a great shock. These words go together, and they're meant to go together in this particular passage. It's, it's something that happened to Jesus that was so bad that it surprised him. Now think about that for a second. So bad that, that on reflecting on it, it caused extreme anguish. Look at verse 34. And he said to them, the disciples, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Watch in Greek means stay awake or be alert, be on guard, because this is war. Jesus understood this was war. Look at verse 35. Going a little bit further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. Jesus knew he was at war. He prayed urgently to his father. In fact, in Luke 22, verse 44, it says this, And being in, an, um, in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. I don't know if I've ever prayed that hard. Look at verse 36. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. There's the trust. There's the trust. God, you, you are good. God, I love you. You're, you're my father. You want what's best for me. Even though this may be hard, I trust you. I trust you, not my will, but yours, because your will is so much better than mine. Jesus prayed with urgency, and we should pray with urgency, which leads to our fourth exhortation. Just stay in Mark for a second. Our fourth exhortation says this, pray with alertness and perseverance. Pray with alertness and perseverance. Look at Mark fourteen thirty-seven. And he came and found them, that's disciples, sleeping. That's the American church. Disciples were tired. It was comfortable. They fell asleep. And he said to Peter, right? He, he targets Peter. Simon, are you asleep? Could you, could you not watch for one hour? And listen to his command, verse 38. Watch and pray. Twofold. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. You know what? Peter entered into temptation. He failed. 
The devil shot some fiery arrows towards Peter, and he failed three times. He wasn't alert. He didn't realize he was at war. He thought he could handle it. Watch and pray, Jesus says. Wake up! Listen, diligent prayer leads to alertness. And alertness brings diligent prayer. Now turn back to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18. There's really just two main imperatives in verse 18 that I want you to see. Imperative is the same word for command. There's two main commands in verse 18, this verse that we've been studying so far. The first command is this, pray. Right, verse 18, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. The second command is this, keep alert. Watch. Be awake. Second part of verse 18, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplications for all the saints. The same thing Jesus said to the disciples. Watch and pray. Be alert and pray that you may not enter into temptation. You know, this is why Ephesians 6 is here, I believe. It's to warn us. It's to warn us of danger. Ephesians 6, verse 11, put on the whole armor of God. Why do you need to put armor on? Because you're at war. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. It's a warning, right? It's reminding us that we are at war. Look at verse, Ephesians 6, verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. This is the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, I think Peter got it. Right? Jesus said, watch and pray, and he didn't, and he fell into temptation. And then he comes back in 1 Peter 5, 8 and warns us, be sober-minded. Be watchful. In other words, be awake. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Because Peter was asleep, he was devoured. Paul gets it. That's why he says in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. We need to be alert. Prayer causes alertness, and alertness causes us to pray. Brings me to the fifth exhortation. We need to be praying for each other. Look at the second part of verse 18. It says, Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplications for all the saints. There's something I haven't talked about a Roman soldier. Remember, uh, Paul is, is chained to a Roman soldier, and he takes the armor of the Roman soldier and, and relates it to the different spiritual armors. There's something about a, a Roman soldier I haven't talked about, but they were known to be unmovable when they stood together. In fact, one historian said this, in the day of battle, Roman soldiers were to stand their ground and not retreat. As long as they stood together on a flat, open field and did not break ranks, their legions were considered virtually invincible. You think of the shields. They would, they would stand these four-foot shields side by side. Couldn't get through them. Ephesians 6.13 says, Take up the whole armor of God that you. English fails us here. That you in Greek is plural. I read that and think that we need to take up the armor of God, which we do, but we need to take up the armor of God as in plural. Together. We need each other. It should be y'all. You think that's less sophisticated, us Californians. That's more sophisticated, right? That tells you that's plural. In Greek, it's clearly plural. Therefore, take up the the whole armor of God that y'all, right? All of us. It's not an individualistic thing. We all need to take up the armor of God together. May be able to to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. The only way we're going to stand firm is if we do it together. You know that if you're fighting against the army by yourself, right, the army of the devil and all of his Satan or demons, you're going to fall by yourself. We stand together as one body. Therefore, we need to pray for each other. We need to pray for each other. This is why I think small groups are so important. 
get to know a group of people, a smaller group of people than the large church. Get to, get to know them intimately and, and so you can pray for each other. In fact, our small group, we break up guys and girls and we spend, spend all of our time just talking about prayer requests. And we don't even pray for each other there. We, we just know we're going to be praying for each other throughout the whole week because we need it. That's why we should be in small groups and praying for each other. I, I have some other ideas. We as a family play, pray through Christmas cards. If you send me a Christmas card this year, you'll get prayed for at some point. We just, kids go and grab a Christmas card, we pray. It's usually church family and our family family. And go through them and pray, and then after we're done praying for them, we rip them up and throw them away. Sorry. It's just a lot of Christmas cards. <laughs> we do it in all reverence. You could pray through the church directory. Even people you don't know, just names. Pray for them. People you do know, pray for them. You can ask for prayer. We have connection cards in the back. Many of you do that. Just so you know, the elders each week pray for you guys. Pray by name. Those that ask for prayer. We even, online now, countryoaks.org, if you go to countryoaks.org, our homepage in the top right-hand corner, there's a tab that just says prayer. You can ask for prayer. You can be private. It'll just go to the elders and the prayer team. Or you can make it public, and if you look on there, it'll just say the prayers that are needed, and you can go through those prayers and pray. I encourage you to do that. We should be praying for each other as a body. Which brings me to my sixth and last exhortation, or Paul's sixth or last exhortation. We should be praying consistently, earnestly, with, with perseverance for our cross-cultural workers. I just think about standing shoulder to shoulder with this church and we're sending men and women out there to the front lines by themselves in enemy territory. We should be diligently praying for them. You know, that's what they always ask for. There's not one cross-cultural worker that we support that doesn't come and just say, pray for us. So the last thing they ask for is always money. Look at the end of verse 18. Making supplications for all the saints. Verse 19. And also for me. It's Paul. Just pray for me. It's Paul asking for prayer. As a missionary. In another culture, in enemy territory. Pray for me that, that the words may be given to me in, in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mysteries of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Context, we know this, right? Paul's in prison. He's waiting for his trial. He's in prison. He's waiting for his trial. Look at verse 20. He says, which I am an ambassador. What's an ambassador? He calls himself an ambassador. Ambassador is a, a person that's sent by a king to speak for that king with the authority of that king to another country. Paul is in Rome. He's saying, I'm an ambassador for God. This is not my home. This earth is not our home. We're ambassadors. Paul's in Rome. He's an ambassador. He's asking for prayer because at some point, you know, he's going to be put in trial and there's going to be all these high officials, maybe even the emperor himself there, they're on trial listening to Paul and what he has to say. And Paul prays for two things. He asks for prayer for two things. Verse 19, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mysteries of the gospel. That They may boldly proclaim the gospel clearly. And two, the end of verse 20 that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Think about that request for a second. Paul's in prison. He's been in prison for years. Years. His life is literally on the line. At, at any point, he could get his head chopped off, which he eventually does. And he's concerned about two things. One, that he would 
clearly proclaim the gospel, God's words, not his own, that they would be given to him, that the words may be given to me, and two, that he would proclaim it boldly. That he would declare it boldly as I ought to speak. We are called to proclaim the good news boldly. Boldly. Here's the implication. We should be praying consistently, earnestly, with perseverance for our cross-cultural workers. Praying two things. Mainly two things. The first one is this, that God would give them the words to speak. That they would proclaim the gospel clearly. You know what that means? That means learning a language. And for, for a lot of them, that means learning a language so they can learn another language. Learn the heart language of a people. And proclaim the gospel clearly so they understand it clearly. It means learning a culture that's foreign to them. So they don't misspeak when they're proclaiming the gospel. We need to pray that, that God would give them the words to speak and that they would proclaim the gospel clearly. And the second thing we need to pray for is that they would speak boldly. That they would declare the gospel boldly, as Paul says, I ought to speak. Verse 19. And also for me, Paul says, pray for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mysteries of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Verse 21. So that you also may know how I am, what I am doing. Tychius, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. Right? Paul sends a friend. Why does he do that? He sends a friend to deliver this letter that, that he has written, but, but also to share what's going on with Paul so, so that the church would know exactly what to pray for for him. That's how important prayer is to Paul. I'm sending someone so you know exactly what to pray for. Verse 22. I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. So you know exactly what to pray for. We should know who our, our missionaries are and we should pray for them. Pray for them. Paul gives us six exhortations about prayer while in spiritual warfare. First, pray continually. Second, we should pray in the Spirit. Third, we should pray with urgency. Fourth, we should pray with alertness and perseverance. Fifth, we should pray for each other. And sixth, we should be praying for our cross-cultural workers, those that are on the front line of the battle. And finally, my third point, closing benediction. Or benediction. End of this letter. It's beautiful. I don't have much to say about it. It's short and simple. Verse 23. Peace be to you, brothers, in love, with faith from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul mentions peace, love, and faith, which are major themes of the book of Ephesians. Simple, beautiful benediction. And he ends in verse 24. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. There's only grace for those who have a relationship with Christ. You see that? Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ. There's only grace for those that have put their faith in Christ, that have put their trust in Christ, that have made Christ their treasure. Grace be with all of you who love our Lord Jesus Christ. So I think that's a perfect ending. So we end a whole year, longer than a year's worth of study on this one book. Let's end with the gospel. Listen, if you don't know Christ, you're not in right standing with God. You have sinned and, and fallen short of the glory of God, and you need grace. And Jesus Christ came. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross, and on the third day, he was raised from the dead, and he's alive today as the, the sovereign king of everything at the right hand of his Father. And for those that trust in him, that put their faith in him, they receive grace. Your good works are not good enough to have a relationship with God. You need Christ's works, what he did on the cross for you, his life, his perfect life he lived, and the payment of sins. Listen, if you don't know Christ, if you're listening online and you don't know who he is, if you're in this room and you don't have a relationship with him, 
I am warning you, wrath is coming your way if you don't trust in him. Put your faith in Christ this morning. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, Lord, again, as we think about Thanksgiving, where we started this morning, Lord, I thank you for the grace that you have given us. I thank you that you loved us so much that you sent your Son to die on the cross for our sins. Lord, for those in here that are truly saved, Lord, I pray that we walk, walk worthy of the calling with which you have called us, Lord, that you've taken our dead lives and made us alive. You've intervened in our lives. We were children destined for wrath, and you changed that. But God, verse 4, the most amazing verse in all of Scripture, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. You made us alive in Christ Jesus. Help us to live a life worthy of that calling, Lord. If there's anyone listening right now that does not know you, Lord, I pray that they put their faith in your Son. You have called them to put your faith in the Son. It's, it's good news that he came and died on the cross for their sins, Lord. I pray that they trust, they get on their knees right now in this moment in their heart, Lord. They cry out to you for mercy and grace. I pray that you change their dead soul to, to a living one. Their dead, callous heart to one of flesh. It's only done through your Spirit, Lord pray that they put their faith in your son. I thank you, Lord, for this study. I thank you for the book of Ephesians. Be with us, Lord, as a church, as we continue to stand firm, Lord, against the schemes of the devil. In your son's name, amen.